Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by Reader Supported, LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the gender and sexuality editor at LARB, and I'm alone in the studio today. But I do have a great show for you. Today, we have a conversation between LARB publisher and editor-in-chief, Tom Lutz, aka The Big Boss Man, and Juliette Lapidos. This conversation was originally produced for the LARB Book Club, a program that supports our publication and gives you a subscription to books that we love and want to talk to you about. Juliette Lapidos is a writer and editor. She was currently a senior editor at The Atlantic and has previously worked for the LA Times, The New York Times, and Slate. Juliette is also, most recently, the author of Talent, a novel about a 29-year-old English grad student who can't finish her dissertation, spending her days eating Pop-Tarts rather than producing pages. Hashtag relatable content. Everything changes when she meets the niece of a famous author and gets access to his notebooks. Anna finds in the author's archive the inspiration that she'd been lacking, and it takes her on a whirlwind journey into the depths of a literary mystery. And without further ado, I'll turn it over to Tom Lutz and Juliet Lapidos. Hello, Juliet Lapidos, author of Talent, and welcome to the Los Angeles Review of Books Book Club. Thank you for having me. I think it might make sense for you to read just a little bit for us, just so we can get a flavor of how you hear the words. Pick any part of it that you'd like. Great. I'm happy to. I'm going to read from a passage that's not from the main narrative, but from one of the notebooks by the author Frederick Langley, who's not a real author, but an author I made up. Uh, so this is from his notebook. It's a, it's one of his story ideas. Frank Luce writes a successful debut novel that's turned into a blockbuster film. He makes so much money, just gobs and gobs of it, he knows he will never need to work again. But he's embarrassed to let on that he intends to spend the rest of his life doing nothing. He's suffering from writer's block. Luce understands that the desire to do nothing is shocking to Americans. In surveys, most people call themselves middle class. And for all the political rhetoric about rewarding wealth, Americans find the notion of someone rich enough not to lift a finger not only repulsive, but also confusing. It seems wrong. Morally hand on the Bible wrong. It seems European. God forbid anyone with means take a rest before turning 65. Those with money must either make more money or assist those without. There are no other options. I mean North Americans. Brazilians are different. Using writer's block as a beard, Luce makes his avocation leisure, his vocation leisure. Edmund Burglar coined the term writer's block in 1947. Burglar said writer's block could be total or partial, and that it grew out of feelings of insecurity. He traced these feelings to oral masochism and a superego-driven need for punishment. I barely understand what he means. <laughs> Burglar thought writers starved themselves creatively because their mothers had starved them of milk during breastfeeding. Pardon me? Hilarious. At dinner parties, Luz complains loudly that his mother never breastfed him. Too much? She'd tear her nipple away from precious little Frankie, and he'd cry and cry. (laughs) And um, that's one of uh, a number of parts of the notebook when Frederick is kind of giving uh, stories and reasons and uh, understandings of why it's best to do absolutely nothing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, yes, probably fairly obviously that you know he's a 
this character in this little story of his has the same initials as he does. Yes, right. And he, uh, in the section that was some mornings are meant for doing nothing, some afternoons are meant for doing nothing, some evenings are meant for doing nothing, some days are meant for doing nothing, some weeks are meant for doing nothing, some months are meant for doing nothing, some years are meant... This is a kind of... Um, I recognize it as, a, as classic slacker comedy. <laughs> right? Yes, I think that's one way of looking at it. Yeah, you know, uh, yeah. Maybe including in word choice, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, he's even lazy about how he's going to express it. He's just going to use the same sentence over and over again. And so, of course, I'm very interested in slackers. I wrote a book about slackers, and slacker comedy is one of the ways, I argue in that book, that people come to terms with what your author thinks of as a perversion introduced to uh, the world through American, the American work ethic. Yeah, I think, I think that's a fair way maybe of characterizing what he's going through or what he, what he convinces himself is the case. And it's always funny, right? Later in that same passage, he, he doesn't actually mention Oblomov, but he is referring to it, a novel in which a guy doesn't get out of bed for the first hundred pages, and he just gets out of bed in order to sit down. Great. And you are taking the same kind of pleasure in that slacker comedy, or you're commenting on that slacker comedy? I think a bit of both. I mean, I do think there's something funny about people who don't do anything. Uh (laughs) But I think some of the humor does come from shock, because there's this kind of expectation that, that not only do people, or I guess Americans in particular, work, but that we're supposed to want to work. We're supposed to derive meaning from work. And so when people don't, I think this kind of threatens a lot about how we lead our lives. I think that, you know, I use this metaphor to, to talk about something slightly different, but in the same way that when somebody who's deeply religious you know, has to talk to an atheist for some reason, it can be very rattling, right? Just that the whole way you build your worldview, the worldview is being challenged by this person who just sees things completely differently. And I think that can happen when um, somebody who's the kind of typical American worker and thinks that they're going to derive meaning in their lives from their career confronts someone who just kind of drops out and thinks, no, that that's not how... Uh, that's not how I want to spend my time. I don't care. If I have money through whatever means, then uh, I'm not going to work to get more of it. Yeah, of course, your protagonist, Anna, has a little bit of a, a slacker problem herself. Yeah, so she, I mean, hopefully it comes across in the book that I, I didn't try to supply a you know rock-solid explanation for why neither of them seem to be able to get work done, um, or I suggest possible different explanations for why neither of them seem to be able to get any work done. But yes, they both suffer from the same problem in her case. She's a graduate student who's been at it for a very long time, and she was once considered very talented, very good at what she did, and she was quite productive, and then she wasn't anymore when it came time to write her dissertation, which I think is actually something, you know, a problem that a lot of graduate students confront. You know, it's one thing to be able to write essays at the undergraduate level. It's one thing to be able to study for your oral exams. And then when you actually have to write a book-length work of criticism, that, that's just an entirely different thing to be asked to do. And a lot of people don't finish. And she's at this stage where she's realizing maybe she's not going to finish. But she is, I think, 
her sense of humor and her relationship to not working, I think, is fairly different from the authors that she's studying. Yeah, it is, right? And I'm fascinated by that because one of the things I found as I was writing this book about slackers is that there are very few women I can talk about in this mm. lineage of male problem, which I trace to the Industrial Revolution and the the way the slacker ethos only arrives with, and I think Langley is right about this, only arrives with the Industrial Revolution. So it arrives mm-hmm. in, in America with some force. And I can trace this these slacker figures in literature to when the Industrial Revolution hits a country. So it happens very late in Japan, but it happens with some force. It happens kind of in between in India and in America and, and various mm-hmm. European countries around the same time. In the 18th century. Right, that's, that's interesting. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, in order to be a slacker, you have to be slacking off from something. Yes, And right. prior to our the way our economies are organized and the way people lead their work lives, there was less of a requirement to do things because there was less to do. And, and certainly a lot of books are about, or in the European tradition, often books were about people of some means. And yeah, there was, there was no expectation that if you had means, you would be industrious all of the time. I mean, that's just not, that's not the way things were. Yeah. Part of the, the luxury of being an aristocrat was that you didn't have to do anything. And certainly if you were a woman, it was, there were household chores, but maybe you had somebody who'd do that for you. And you can't be a slacker if nobody expects you to really do anything other than be at home. Right. Or conversely, if you are uh, working in the Lowell Mills or you're a factory worker, you're a, a farmer, whatever, there's no, slacking is not an option. You work when right. you work when you have to work, right? And so you're more in the school of the pre-industrial revolution workers, which was that if you were lucky and you were an aristocrat, you didn't have to work. And if you were unlucky, you were poor and you had to work. Right. There's no no other option. Yeah. So I love to have this new entry in the, uh, in the slacker genre. Do you think that gender has something to do with the difference between the way Anna and Langley are looking at things? It may. I didn't think of it entirely in that way. I mean, I, I did want to write a feminist book, but I suppose the way, I think the way that it's feminist is that and I think some of this through the absence of things. Like, there's no romance in the book. She never thinks mm-hmm. about men. She never, or she doesn't think about men in terms of relationships with men. So she right. she doesn't define herself in that way that I think still a lot of female characters in novels do. There's just no pursuit for that side of life. She really just thinks about her work and whether or not she wants to do it or whether or not she's able to do it. So I think that kind of singular focus is is feminist. Whether or not her relationship to not working is different from Freddie's because she's a woman, I'm sure. I actually didn't really think of that when I was when I was writing it. Uh-huh. But I think part of it is that they're they're at different stages. So when this author character Freddie is reflecting on his lack of productivity he already has a lot of success behind him and he's older. So he's already kind of proven himself and decided to stop for whatever reason, or perhaps it's that he has writer's block. It's not entirely clear. Mm -hmm. Um, And in Anna's case, she, she hasn't really proven anything. I mean, all she's done is gotten into a fancy university and gotten to the stage where she's supposed to write her dissertation, but that's, you know, it's not really the equivalent of having 
published a few books that everybody, that the public liked. So I think that's partly the difference between them, that she she doesn't have laurels to rest on, really, whereas um, as Freddie does. Yeah, and then, of course, our third character, our third major character, is she doesn't seem to work either. That's right. So her position is a little bit different. Well, I guess I'll introduce her. So this, this third character you're alluding to is the author's niece, is Frederick Langley's niece, a woman named Helen, who becomes friends with Anna and kind of introduces her to Langley's work and to the existence of these notebooks. And unlike her uncle, unlike Freddie Langley, who published these successful books, and unlike Anna, who was born into a wealthy family and has a fair amount of money to to fall back on. Helen doesn't have either of these things. She's not professionally accomplished and she doesn't have money. So she's actually somebody who needs to work, mm-hmm. but um, maybe more vehemently than anybody else really doesn't want to. And is I suppose a lot of this is kind of unsaid, but she, she just, she tries to find ways around having to, like participate in, for lack of a better word, the rat race. Mm-hmm. And she does this by skirting the rules so you know she dabbles in kind of light not terribly serious criminal behavior to get away with not working yeah she's a kind of quiet grifter right yeah (laughs) and then there's another thing that i think is very interesting about anna's inability to work but obviously the book is called talent and her dissertation is about issues of writing that have to do with well, she's interested in inspiration, right? right? And whether or not inspiration is just a, a weird romantic fantasy, whether it's really just an author sits down and kind of grits it out and, and does the work and therefore ends up with a with a book or doesn't sit down and do the work and it's got nothing to do with being inspired. That's the thesis that she would like to prove. Yeah, she, she has no tolerance for this kind of romantic idea of the, you know, moment where the, the light switch just turns on and suddenly you have you have the idea and it kind of pours out of you. You know, the idea of like a, a muse singing to a poet or the that's taken various forms over many centuries. And so she she kind of convinces herself that this is all just silly and it's really just about work and there's nothing that distinguishes artistic production from any other kind of production. I, you know, I don't I don't think her I think the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle that, you know, anybody who thinks that all they need to do or, or that the key to being an artist is being inspired is that's you know not quite right. There's always an enormous amount of effort involved, or at least some effort involved. Mm-hmm. But she her theory I think doesn't really make a whole lot of sense either because there are quality differences and you know there are people who slave away over their art whatever it might be and never really produce anything very good and there are other people who sit down and they do produce very good things and so what is it that distinguishes those two people it's not just ours there is something else and that something else is kind of mysterious Mm -hmm. and so it doesn't matter whether you call it inspiration or talent or Something yeah, else. whatever it is, there does seem to <laughs> there does seem to be something else beyond work that makes someone good at what they do or not. I suppose I'm with Anna and that I think the same can be said for any number of fields. It's not just art where that applies. Um, 
you know, I think that there are some lawyers who are more talented than others. It's not just about the, the time you put in at the office. It may be that it's about your upbringing in some ways, like what you had access to when you were developing as a mind, but it's still kind of hard to quantify, I think. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to a conversation between Tom Lutz and Juliet Lapidos, author of Talent. Just a kind of personal sidebar, don't you have this experience sometimes while you're writing, especially writing fiction, I think. For me, it happens more writing fiction than it does writing anything else, where all of a sudden you're just kind of swept up in something that seems to be qualitatively different than doing regular work. You seem to be kind of in the throes of some kind of enchantment as you're writing because people are doing things and saying things that you didn't expect and you're in a flow that's very pleasurable and interesting. And that seems to me easy to mistake for inspiration. Yeah, or maybe that's what inspiration is, whatever it is that happens when you're in the flow as you describe it. I remember hearing a segment on, I think it was Science Fridays once. Where we all get our science. Yeah, that's certainly where I get my science. (laughs) And it was about, well, he started out by talking about the zone that athletes describe getting into, Mm -hmm. where you're not thinking, you're just acting. And that's when you can be most effective on the field, I suppose. And then he did an experiment where he got an MRI he got two MRIs, and in the first one, he gave himself a task, and he found it very difficult to focus on the task, so he was kind of churning. And in the other one, sorry, I'm not describing this very well. No, that's the long okay, and yeah. short of it was that when you're able to produce something, in this case, you task yourself with like writing a paragraph or a sentence or something like that, there's actually less brain activity than when you can't do something. And I think that's what you're kind of describing about like you get into the flow and somehow like you don't even know how it is, but the characters are saying interesting things to each other. For me, my experience of that is post-facto that I go back and I read something I wrote maybe even not that long ago and I think, well, where did this come from? I just don't remember (laughs) writing this, but I I mean, I did. So (laughs) it came from somewhere, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, of course, since you've got this, Anna is a graduate student in literature. She has a bunch of background understandings of what it all means based on literary theory, including the death of the author. Right. So that's a concept that when I was in school was still very much dominant, that the correct way to go about interpreting a work of art is to basically ignore biography, that there's something almost unsophisticated about caring about who the author is and what their ideas might be about the book, that it's just about the work of art and your task is to look at it as if it were independent. I mean, I'm describing it in a kind of stark way and there's all sorts of departures from that, but Mm -hmm. that is more or less how I was taught. You're not really supposed to care about who the author was or what they meant to say. And I do think that can end up feeling a little bit ridiculous if you also have artistic ambitions that, you know, how can you actually totally divorce (laughs) the author from the work of art? And I think that for people who are interested in writing or who do write, there's something intrusive about the idea that once your work is in the world, scholars think it's their job to like pretend you don't exist at all. <laughs> right. It's a kind of reductio ad absurdum of anti-romanticism. 
right? Right. It's the absolute opposite of the genius author at work. All the author does is say their culture. The culture speaks through them. Right. And I think it's not a coincidence that these theories happened when academics became, you know, there was this change in academia that instead of just trying to draw out the meaning of a text, it was sort of like the concept of a kind of hero professor and professors were suddenly kind of mysteriously part of the avant-garde even and that they were doing something very specialized and kind of an art form in its own right. And I think in order to make room for the profession to make room for itself in that way, they had to say that authors weren't actually very important. You know, that's a kind of almost Freudian interpretation of what happened and where these theories came from, which is probably a, its own kind of problem. But I do think there's a little bit of that that was going on. Oh, yeah. And we called them turboprofs when I was in yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. they were flying around everywhere giving speeches. And you have that great line, junking the author declaring that his take was no more valid than any other, freed up the criticism industry like junking the gold standard, freed up monetary policy. I just yeah, love, so I, love that sentence. They, yeah. <laughs> There's no anchor anymore, yeah. so you can say whatever you want. And as we know from our own work, the author does have something to do with it, and we don't. <laughs> we can no longer quite buy that. I think you're absolutely right that part of it was, I think it followed on our infatuation with French theory because we started to idolize these French theorists, and then everybody's tried to write like French theorists and be their own, the critic that replaces the author as the center of the text. Yeah. To the credit of the many wonderful teachers I had in high school and college, I remember whenever we read something by either a French theorist or somebody in that school, they said, read this closely, but don't try to write like this. Um <laughs> Like, please don't try to write like Derrida. I'm sure they had just tons of undergraduate essays over the years of people who attempted to excuse just being entirely obscure and not actually saying anything intelligible by trying to imitate the Derrida stuff. Yeah, I just sat on a committee for a dissertation defense just this morning. And, uh, okay. <laughs> and she's actually a great writer, this newly minted PhD as of today. But there were just a few sentences that I had to mark because she was mimicking a certain way of speaking that makes absolutely no sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do think we're coming out of that a little bit. It seems to me that the people that I talk with who are they're getting PhDs or they've been professors for a while feel that that kind of insularity and that academics talking to each other with tons of jargon maybe hasn't aged well. Yeah, and Anna is really not that interested in it at all. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the, I think we catch her at a moment when perhaps because she finds that she can't do it, she's more critical of it, and that if we'd met her a couple years earlier when she was doing quite well, she might have thought that being an academic was great and that the professorial elite was totally admirable because she thought that she was headed there. But hopefully it's not entirely straightforward which direction the motivated reasoning goes in. You know, is she this critical of academia because she's not good at it? Or is she no longer very good at academia because her heart's not in it? Because she realizes that she has problems with it. Yeah, well, and it, of course, it's a very good novel, so it doesn't decide those questions, right? It just throws them up for us. It makes us That's the idea. Yeah, you figure this out, reader. Yeah. yeah. I like the, this was another one of these passages that I marked because it was a classic slacker moment. She's having a conversation, imagining a conversation with her mother and father. 
And she says, I could imagine myself saying, Uncle Joshua was meant to be a doctor, and you thought I was meant to study literature. I thought so too. But as it turns out, I wasn't. Maybe I was meant to do nothing. Nothing. <laughs> right. Nothing. Yeah, maybe all You're of us were actually meant to do nothing. Yeah. yeah. You have to maximize your potential, she imagines them saying, I plan to maximize my laziness. If it was a pose, it was as good as any other. I could try it on and see how I liked it. And it, there is some sense that there's a series of poses. One of them was that she was a great academic. She was an emeritus professor in waiting. And then later, one of the poses is as a slacker. One of the poses is as an investigator into Freddie Langley. She tries on these poses because they're all as good as another. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And she is, you know, she's a young woman. She's 29. She hasn't figured things out yet. She is in the midst of realizing a disappointment. Throughout the book, she's sort of only very slowly accepting that what she thought she was going to do with her life is probably not going to be what she does with her life. And it's at this moment of vulnerability that she's introduced kind of to this possibility that you could defend doing nothing at all. And that's intoxicating to her. And she kind of decides that there is nothing meaningful about laziness, that there's something depressing, childish about letting your talent go to waste. I don't know if she gets there. Maybe she does. I feel that way. Uh (laughs) I think that doing nothing gets to be pretty boring and that it's, I guess I am one of these people that thinks like, actually, you can derive a lot of meaning from your career and you can derive a lot of meaning from your work. And that's not a bad way of going about things. I'm not sure if she, if she gets there by the end. When we leave her, she's still trying to decide how much she's going to embrace nothingness and how much of a, how much time she's going to give herself to do nothing. Is there a sequel? Are we going to find out what happened? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Yeah. I hope to write another book, but I can't imagine keeping Keep this it. particular story going. You know, it's a short book, and I kind of thought that's what it should be. <laughs> so have you started another novel? I've been chipping away at something quite different since finishing this one. I started a family, so I have less time mm-hmm. to chip away at something. But and a new hopefully job one day I'll well. finish it. Right? Yes, I'll start a new job. And you say it's quite different in what way? Instead of just one narrator, the idea is that every chapter is a different first-person narrator. So I suppose it's similar in that I, I guess I like the first person. But it's structured very differently, and it's not a campus or academic context. There is a theme, but the approach is quite different. It's so gestational at this point that I don't feel like uh-huh. I can even say more well, that will make any sense. Kind of like, as I lie dying, it's as I lie doing nothing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> In your day job at the Atlantic Monthly, you're an editor, and that's a very different relation to the written word than being a fiction writer. Do the two complement each other, or are they just two different, completely different activities? I think they do complement each other. I mean, one thing that I've been thinking about as I promote the book and ease into this new job. So what I edit is nonfiction commentary, is mostly political commentary. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my job as an editor, I'd say like the most important thing maybe beyond being interesting, I guess, is being clear. You need the argument to be clear. You don't want somebody to finish a piece and wonder 
know, what was that person saying? And what is it that they were arguing? Where do they come down on this? It needs to be obvious. And it's the writer's job in some ways to be obvious because they're trying to persuade. And in fiction, that's not always the author's job, right? I mean, sometimes, and I guess this is opposite to what I was saying about Derrida and to academic writing, but sometimes you want a little muddiness, right? Like sometimes it's interesting in fiction for things to be unclear, to be ambiguous, to leave a little work up to the reader. So that is very different. The goals I'm trying to achieve as a fiction writer versus as an editor of nonfiction. To quote another critic, it's seven types of ambiguity that you want in Mm -hmm. fiction, right? And ambiguity is not prized in polemic. You can certainly describe ambiguous situations or your argument can be this political event or whatever it is, is more ambiguous than we want to give it credit Mm -hmm, for or whatever. mm -hmm. But the argument itself should not be ambiguous. (laughs) Maybe in feature writing you can do that, but not in op-ed style writing. I found that, you know, editing Los Angeles Review of Books now for seven or eight years, that all of that marking up of the writing of others, which is considerably different than marking up student writing, because obviously it's more advanced writing. But it really made me a better constructor of sentences mm-hmm. and made me a little bit better at recognizing my own structures, you know, at the paragraph level and at the page level and at the chapter level. I hope it's done that for me. I mean, I think it's also made me respect the people who edit my work, that I think, well, you know, if this doesn't make sense to my editor, if it doesn't land for her, then she's probably onto something. Exactly. <laughs> you know, because I hope I hope writers see me that way. And so I guess I give them I'm generous to my editor the way I hope writers are generous to me. And it also makes you very appreciative of talent. I suppose it does, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the greatest gift an editor can have is just a clean and also kind writer who just, it's like the kind of writing that you're bringing from an A- minus to an A, where you're just going like, this can be just a little punchier. That's very fun to work on. And your editor for the novel, did they do significant work on it, or was it line edit, copy edit kind of work? it's significant but I mean it was so before we sent it out my agent did a pass on it and he had some good suggestions it was less on a level of the line and more well what if you wrote a little bit more here what if you flesh this out and maybe said a little less over there mm-hmm. and my book editor was a kind of similar experience you know scenes that she thought could last a little longer and others that she thought went on for too long And I thought that was very helpful because I think that it is a little hard. I wrote this over the course of many years, and by the time I sent it out, I I was frankly bored of it. You know, I had read it too many times, and when you get to that stage, I think it's difficult to know what's going to be interesting to people. So there were scenes that I thought, I just, I need to keep this moving. And my editor, who obviously had not read it a billion times over six years, thought, no, you know, this is good. I think we could actually use a few more paragraphs to, like, stay in this moment a little longer. Well, I loved the moments I spent in the book, and I think everybody in the book club did. And we thank you very much for being part of the process. Thank you. It's such a treat to be able to talk about the book with somebody who's read it so closely. (laughs) My pleasure entirely. Thanks again, Julie Lapidos, author of Talent. You've been listening to a conversation between Tom Lutz and Juliet Lapidus, author of Talent. This conversation was a special production of the LARB Book Club. And if you want to find out more about the LARB Book Club, go to www.lareviewofbooks.org backslash member. Again, that's www 
www.lareviewofbooks.org backslash member. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books.